What's up, Claima family? It's Bima. I wanted to address two things before we jump into the first episode of season two. First, we wanted to send love and encouragement to members of our community located in Texas that are impacted by the recent snowstorm. For those that are able to help, texastribune.org has a number of ways that you can get involved. And to our Asian community, we stand with you against hate. Racism against anyone is never acceptable anywhere. We will continue to fight with you for equality and equity in our future. So I, I pursued product design. I didn't, I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't know how to draw. I didn't really have any kind of technical skills. So I started taking night classes at Art Center in Pasadena because I had done research and it was one of the best product design schools in the country and it wasn't too far from where I lived. So I started taking night classes and I just fell in love with it. I couldn't believe, like I said, I couldn't believe that this was a job and that people did it and then there was classes for it and people taught you how to do it. And so uh, going to the classes, I realized that I actually, a lot of it was innately in me. I knew I understood product just from being a consumer and from the way that I interacted with product, I knew how I wanted things to be better. And I had ideas for design instantly, but I didn't have any of the tools, the technical tools. This is Claim of Stories, a show about leading and emerging BIPOC creatives and how they were able to claim their dream careers. I'm Bima, and on today's show, we learn how Melody Asani took her destiny into her own hands and filled a hole that streetwear desperately needed. She shares her stories of growing up as an Iranian in LA in the 80s, and how losing her father pushed her into carving her own lane, and how her faith led her to meet people who would leave an imprint in her life and in her future work. Instead of going to law school, she decided to pack up and head to China, where she would design her first collection of heels, not sneakers, as some of you may have thought basically run a one-woman creative shop and pivot into jewelry design that put her in position to work with legends like Saul Williams and Erica Badu. Although you'd think Melody would lean into the glitz and glamour that comes with that, she returned home to open up shop and bring some much-needed feminine energy to Fairfax, where her shop will become the center of education and social justice. In our conversation ahead, we talk about her days growing up as a kid in L.A. I loved L.A. in the 80s. It was (laughs) such a... uh magical place for me growing up only because I was you know my my parents were still pretty traditional and I only spoke Farsi with my mom so I didn't really speak English with her at home and I would go to school and it was a completely different world I was being exposed to a lot of cultures and so in a lot of ways I knew more about the world and culture than my mom did And so it was really interesting living between two worlds. It's like going out and finding where I saw myself or what I related to and and then coming home and figuring out what parts of that I wanted to, you know, bring forward or keep behind or whatever. And so it, it was really interesting growing up in two sort of different worlds at the same time. 
how did how did your mom uh, react to some of the things that maybe you would bring home that you picked up from school? It wasn't easy. You know, she wasn't used to a lot of things. She wasn't, um, yeah. You know, uh, well, I'll say this: there was, there was a lot of ways where I was really lucky because she was kind of clueless, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I had, a, I sort of had like a little bit of a clueless childhood. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because things would happen to me like. I remember I was in school and this kid called me a sand. What? Excuse me. Yeah. And um, back then there was there was a lot of stuff in the in the media about Iran and Middle Easterners and it was sort of and I was clueless to that. And so wow. I remember coming home and telling my mom mm-hmm. and my, my mom didn't know what that meant or she had never heard the N word. Yeah, and um, so she was like, "Oh, they like you. They they're just trying to be friends with you." Oh my goodness! Oh my <laughs> so goodness! I was like, "Oh, they like me. It's fine." Yeah, you know, you're so thinking it's like, a term of endearment, right? It's little things like that where I was a little bit clueless. So um, it was interesting. Yeah. Do you recall like there was a point where you were like, "Oh, I I now understand what's happening." Like, when did you start to put two and two together? Where you are living in these two different worlds and you are essentially perceived different because of the color of your skin. Well, I, I was never, well, it was interesting. I, in my elementary school, I was, it was predominantly white up until third grade. And then in the third grade we moved and I went to a much more diverse school. Mm-hmm. And so I started to become much more aware of other things, other cultures. And then I also grew up a Baha'i, practicing the Baha'i faith. And Mm. in the Baha'i faith, one of the number one principles is, um, you know, it's very, like, diverse and against racism and oneness of mankind and all this stuff. And so I started to learn about a lot of things and be exposed to a lot of things uh, at a young age where I started to know or understand the way Americans viewed race Mm. and that there was definitely a system, like a class system. And it was definitely, I mean, it's definitely a thing to, to come to growing up. Do you recall how you sort of internalized some of those things? Did, did it reshape kind of you as a kid or how you would interact or even approach other kids? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from a from a very young age, I knew it was wrong. Mm. You know, I just didn't I didn't understand it. And but it wasn't until a little bit later where I would get where I found my people, so to speak, or found yeah. why it was wrong. So I've sh- I've shared this story before, but when I was eight, seven or eight, um, I. I joined the Baha'i Youth Workshop, which was sort of a dance workshop, and it was a group of youth. There was Baha'i kids in it, but there was also all other kinds of kids, and we would travel the country and dance, and we had raps. It was essentially like a theater music group. Oh, this sounds awesome. Yeah, and all of it was based around the principles of the Baha'i faith, which were, again, like oneness of mankind, um, the elimination of wealth and poverty. So it was all these like very lofty principles. And Oscar DeGruy, 
who is who started the workshop was a former Black Panther and so my when my dad died when I was 10 he sort of became my dad you know he was the oh, wow. the main father figure in my life and raised me mm-hmm. and um, at the same time I met his sister who was Dr. Joy DeGruy who um, has you know wrote the book Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome and has been studying race since then and so growing up under people like that and listening to their perspective and their work really shaped me and then at the same time getting into hip hop it was the 80s yeah. and you know I looked up to people like Big Daddy Kane and wow. you know and so it was just sort of this environment that that really shaped my opinion i mean public enemy and mm-hmm. you know it, it was like <laughs> the soundtrack to my life where i became super aware of it pretty pretty i mean it, you had such a a system kind of shaping essentially what would become who you would be essentially because you had like this great foundation that is music that's rooted in social rights and then you have this father figure who is sharing you things about the world that you know, you're young, you have, you don't necessarily have an idea to the layers of the things that have taken place here. And now you have this framework to say, oh, I wonder if maybe subconsciously I could do something about that down the line. It may not be something you even think about at the age of, of 10 or 11, uh, but it's something that starts to percolate, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it kind of bugs me out looking back. And, <laughs> and this is the same way I feel about everybody but how each individual story, it's its like you're always who you are from the beginning, <laughs> you know? It, yeah. And so even sometimes I look back and I'm like, wow, I can't believe I've been this person all along because you forget. Yes. And it's really interesting when you go back and see what actually shaped you. But I, I feel really lucky to have had that growing up. And, you know, even the spiritual foundation that I was given mm-hmm. really shapes a lot of who I am now. Yeah. And and so all of it, you know, kind of has come together in, in different formations throughout my life. Yeah. And, you know, I was, uh, you, had, you touched a little bit on uh, the passing of your father when you were 10. Do you, do you remember how you found out what was happening? Was he, was he sick or it was just... Kind of one day you came home and yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was sick for a while. I knew he was sick um, about a year. Um, but in, I don't know if this is a Persian culture thing or if it was just like my family, but they didn't want me to be sad or, you know, it was always like really, they were really protective of, you know, they thought that they were protecting me from it. But mm-hmm. I remember when he passed, um, I don't think my mom told me until like a week after or something Mm -hmm. like that. And um, when she did tell me, she told me in a way of like, oh, he put his hands up and the angels came and took him. And at that time, I took it very literally. Yeah, Yeah, so um, I kind of wish, because when you're 10 years old, it's interesting, you're, um, you're, you you don't know what a lot of words mean. You know, like afterwards I was going through grief, but to a kid, it just felt like I was spiraling downwards. Mm. But I couldn't, I didn't have the words to articulate. How you were feeling. Exactly. And so I I kind of wish that they had had more um, 
sobering conversations with me just so that I could identify what was happening to me at the time. How are you? And so when you were saying you felt like you were spiraling a bit, how, what do you mean? Like, what are some examples of things that were you acting out? Yeah, I did. I did act out a lot. Well, initially the spiraling was just depression. I think that I was just really sad and didn't know how to address it or what it was, Mm -hmm. or I wasn't really aware it was happening. I just knew that it was, and it was a little bit out of my control. And, um, you know, a, a lot of things happen. Like my, my dad was sort of the pivotal person in the household. And after he passed, I sort of saw an opportunity of taking his place because mm. I was like, well, who's going to do his job now? Oh, wow. And so in a lot of ways I did, I just stepped in and did a lot of the things that I thought I should do. Mm-hmm. And, um, so later on, like when I was 14, 15, I started acting out a lot. I think partly because um, all the adults that were around allowed me to do that. And mm. I, I think I was <laughs> upset about it because yeah. why, you know, I'm, I was just a kid. Mm. I was still a kid when I was 15, but I was taking, I had taken on these roles that weren't necessarily mine. It's funny, you know, as we, we, we grow into the different phases and stages of our lives, sometimes you, you, you don't, re, you know, you don't recognize that person even a year ago or even two years ago. It's just, it's just a different place. But for you at this age, you're, you're a teenager and it sounds like you're maturing and, and things are starting to, to change a little bit. Did you ever start to think about maybe what you would become like in life? Had you ever thought about things in that way? I had never, I had always thought about it according to um, my parents or culture. I was like, I'm going to become an attorney and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But I never thought of it, um, hmm. I had never thought of it from an authentic place, mm-hmm. you know, from, uh, it was always like, what, what, how could I serve the world? You know, mm. but I had never thought of it of what would actually serve me mm-hmm. um, so that I could serve the world. Yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. So you were you were already thinking kind of more worldly in, in your thinking anyway. I do I do want to read a, a quote uh, to you that I that I came across in my in my research. And it says, I've been taught that if you want to be respected and noble and want to contribute to society, you have to do science or law or medicine or something along those lines. Um, what do you remember about having to stick to such strict career guidelines? It wasn't even that I was sticking to them. It's just that I didn't <laughs> know that there was more. Ah. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the different kinds of jobs that you could have. And I I think that I just wanted to be really great. and. Mm-hmm. I think that the only reflections I had received back to me about being great were uh, very, you know, like, you have to get a PhD, you have (laughs) to, you know, they were very linear. None of them, Mm -hmm. um, I I wasn't really told, like, when when I discovered that about product design, which is a field that I essentially ended up going into, I didn't even know that that was a career. I didn't realize that people did that for a living. I didn't know that they taught that Mm -hmm. or that it was a role. 
so it, I was really opened up to a lot of things. When you think about kind of your your community growing up, whether it was family and uh, siblings and then parents and their friends, were you mostly surrounded by kind of some of these roles you had identified, like lawyers or doctors and things like that? <laughs> Funny enough, no. <laughs> no. Like, no, my parents, well, um, both my parents are artists, were artists. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, which was funny, but they had never made a career off of their art. So okay. they didn't, they they really didn't want me or my brother to go in that direction. Mm. But my mom's friends were all like, they had used car dealerships and mm. yeah, it was very survival. Or mm. they were doctors in in back at home in their home country, but the degree didn't move forward or mm. they, they couldn't practice here. But I think that it was that kind of survival mentality that didn't want to repeat what they had been through. Mm -hmm. So they had passed forward that um, in order to be successful and in order to succeed here, that you need to take this forward. And it's really a lot of pressure because it's not just it. You're not just doing it for you, but you're doing it for the family. Yeah, you, know? you, you don't want to. I mean, I, I grew up in a, in a single parent home. Uh, I watched my mom go to work at like 7 a.m. and she would yep. get home at 5 and then she would, you know, take care of me and food and stuff like that. Obviously, I would try to cook, but I, <laughs> I was young. This is like when I was young and I was like, you're, you're not about to burn down the house, dude. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I had this. I had this feeling that you're talking about. I had this feeling where I was like, if I don't do this, I'm going to be a huge disappointment to my mom. Yep. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah, it's just exactly. that pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Um, so as you, I mean, for a bit, you did try to go down this path, but it was it's pretty widely known that when you were about 23 that um, you broke away from this path. You You dropped out of law school. Uh, were you afraid that your mom and your community, what they would of what they would think of this decision? I was terrified. Hmm. I was terrified of it. But I I had had a conversation with a friend of mine who was like, "Do you think you were created to, you know, to, is your life purpose to serve your mom or hmm. your community?" Or is it to serve yourself and humanity? And it really resonated with me because I, I really had to ask myself that, am I living for my mom? And for a lot of people, that could be their great purpose. You know, I, mm-hmm. I, I know this woman that never got married, that, you know, she really felt like it was her purpose to take care of her parents. And oh, wow. she did. And it's beautiful. She's completely... You know, it feels like it's in her purpose. It wasn't a sacrifice for her. It was her greatest privilege and honor. Mm. And for me, it wasn't really that. I've, I've always felt like I was meant to do more. And, and that required breaking from, breaking from whatever had been given to me that wasn't mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How did you... How did you initially handle that? Obviously, it's it's a lot to make that decision um, coming from what you had known to be perhaps truth. And so as you're uncovering a different way or even your own truth, um, were you initially like, 
Were you happy? Were you sad? Were you like, were you, did you immediately excel? What was kind of that process that happened after that? I, I actually did excel pretty quickly, mm. but it didn't feel that way at the mm. time. I, um, God, I'm trying to think back. I mean, uh, the, the thing that I remember most about it is that it was a daily struggle and it required a lot of going inside myself in a way that I hadn't done ever. So I was learning a lot of tool. I was, you know, I was kind of working on my toolkit of how do I, how do I connect to myself and to something greater than me? Because I do believe in God. I do have a relationship with the creator. And so I felt like if these are the gifts that I had been created with, or if this is the desire that's innately with me, and I've lived this sort of life that's always pushed me in this direction, why wouldn't I be able to be supported by it? Mm. And it didn't make sense to me. It was like, why would a creator create me like this and then not allow me to live by it? Mm. And so I just kind of had to have a little bit of faith and trust that at some point things would come around in a different way. And then I also had to be okay with if they didn't come around that I would be able to be taken care of in another way or receive whatever it was that I needed in another way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting um, that you point that out because so many of us, um, sometimes when we make these decisions, we expect things like that instant gratification. Like you expect that I left this thing, I know what I'm supposed to do. And so tomorrow I should be the greatest ever. (laughs) And and life doesn't necessarily... um, work out on on our speed or our terms. There's just other things that get involved in that process now. But for you, as as you clearly are aware of that, you are you're taking time. I think this is like 2003 and and you're working through that period. Um, so you what decision do you decide to make after law school? What are you interested in pursuing? So I, I pursued product design. Okay. I didn't I didn't want to go back to school. I didn't know how to draw. I didn't really have any kind of technical skills. So I started taking night classes at Art Center in Pasadena mm-hmm. because I had done research and it was one of the best product design schools in the country and it wasn't too far from where I lived. So I started taking night classes and I just fell in love with it. I couldn't believe, like I said, I couldn't believe that this was a job and that people Mm -hmm. did it and then there was classes for it and people taught you how to do it. (laughs) And so uh, going to the classes, I realized that I actually, a lot of it was innately in me. I knew I understood product just from being a consumer and from Mm -hmm. the way that I interacted with product, I knew how I wanted things to be better. And I had ideas for design instantly, but I didn't have any of the tools, the technical tools. So I stayed there for a while and learned how to draw. I learned how to use Illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, I just learned enough so that I could get my ideas across. Mm-hmm. And then I just started there. So I, I had a really good friend at the time, Mikael, and he helped me a lot with design stuff. And he actually introduced me to his friend, Rich, mm-hmm. who had just started a sneaker company and who gave me my first... Um, 
design internship, so to wow. speak. Wow. Do you remember? And so that was, what was that? That was creative recreation? Yeah. 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 I. It, it's funny. So uh, the one thing we did have in Baton Rouge, so back in, in Louisiana, I was, this was 2006, and I got my first internship at a, a sneaker shop. It was actually our first sneaker shop in Louisiana. It was called Pivot Foot. And the <laughs> only account that they could get, the first account that they got for footwear was Creative Recreation. Wow. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. So it was it was so wild to even, um, when I, I remember seeing that about your story and I was like, oh, that's crazy. Like I was, that's, that's what we were bringing in at that time. Um, but it was, so at your, that was your first experience from a brand side outside, outside of kind of, the class and the schooling that you you receive, yep. this was your actual tangible sense of working and creating product for a company. Yes. Yeah. Goodness. And it was a really new company. So when I was interning for them, I think I came in at like, they were six months in or something crazy. <laughs> wow. And so the only two people that worked at the company were the two owners and then they mm -hmm. had one salesperson. So it was three people and then I was their intern. Yeah. And so what were you doing as an intern? Because, you know, we hear stories about what interns do, but this is a small startup. So yeah. I'm curious to know what your experience was like. Well, I was really lucky because Rich was very, he's hes an incredible designer, but I think he has a gift for mentoring. Mm. And so he had taken a lot of people under his wing before me, including my friend Mikhail, which is why he introduced me to him. And so he is the one that really taught me how to use Illustrator. Mm. And so I would, they would um, give me the tech packs for their shoes. And I would sit there and I would color them up or I would make changes to them. And mm -hmm. I, I would just work on designing shoes. And, you know, obviously I did other things there too, whatever they needed. Yeah. But, but footwear is like the thing that you were kind of gravitating to. Yeah. Yeah. And those tech packs, the tech packs are like, these are like digital files and they have like material call outs and sneaker spec and, and kind yeah. of lines and things. Okay. Yeah. It's basically like a line drawing of the shoe, but it's a technical line drawing. So every single panel, you could see where the stitching is, where, how it's put together um, you can, everything is separated in the file, so you can change the color of each piece however mm -hmm. you want. And then it's, and that's what's sent to whomever's going to make the shoe? Exactly. Okay. okay. Yeah, that was what was sent to the factory. So I learned a lot about the production process through them because I was there when they were communicating with the factory, and I would see when samples would come back. And it was the most exciting thing in the world because you would see something on paper that you had just made and then you would send it off and you would receive this three-dimensional real-life thing that would come back. <laughs> yeah. And there was nothing better. Nothing better than nothing that, better. that shipment coming in. <laughs> no. You're like waiting by the door. You're like, is it here today? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're when you're doing this, did you ever think like, I, I'm going to do my own thing. Like, I'm I'm going to make my own shoes. Yeah, well, initially, I really wanted to work for them. But mm -hmm. after a while of being there, I realized that they weren't going to hire me. And it was also kind of sobering because I was like, oh, I, I actually have no experience. Mm -hmm. And I kind of got in my head a little bit of like, who am I? Mm -hmm. There's so many other people that are more qualified than me. 
So I didn't really see any other option to break in other than opening my own or doing my own thing. So that's when I, at some point I decided I couldn't intern forever. I needed to make a living of some Mm -hmm. sort and my savings was sort of dwindling down. So Mm -hmm. I decided to start my own brand. So you start your own brand and it's, it's footwear. It is. It's footwear at the time. Do you remember what, what year this was? That was 2007. Okay. So 2007, you, you, you start this process and you end up going to, to Guangzhou in China. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I know that is because I used to work in the industry, but otherwise I would have no idea where Guangzhou is, but it's essentially where a lot of the footwear factories are. And you're going to go there to make footwear. Had you ever been to Guangzhou before? Like, how how do you end up going to Guangzhou? <laughs> no, I had never been before. I I had a good friend that was, she was sort of a big sister to me. And she had gone to Harvard Law School and was like this big shot attorney now. Mm-hmm. And she was helping me when I was thinking about getting into law school. Mm-hmm. And I had found out that she had gotten a job at this big law firm in Hong Kong. Mm. So I reached out to her and I was like, hey, it's me. I know I haven't been in touch for a long time. I've actually gone a whole different path. I'm not going <laughs> to law school anymore. <laughs> I was like, but I'm, I'm trying to make shoes and I've done research and it looks like there's a lot of factories in Guangzhou. I was like, since you're in Hong Kong, do you know anybody Hmm. In Guangzhou, and funny enough, she actually did. She knew some people. Yeah, she knew some people. So there was a family that lived in Guangzhou, and the the husband was Iranian, and the wife was Japanese, and they had met in college in India, and they were both living in Guangzhou as English teachers. They taught English and they had four boys all under the age of seven. And they were so sweet. She connected me to them and I reached out to them. I told them what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, you're welcome to come and stay with us and we, we can help you however you want. What are the chances? <laughs> it's crazy. So I I did. I just up and went to Guangzhou and I lived with this incredible family for four months and Mm -hmm. they were so kind to me and and they ended up introducing me to a friend of theirs who was another couple Mm -hmm. and the husband was in, did import export of house things like Mm -hmm. um, building supplies, but the wife really wanted to get into fashion and she was Chinese. Mm-hmm. So the wife was like, I will take you around. I'll help you because I'm trying to get into this industry as well. Mm-hmm. So it was really cool. She took me around. She translated for me and introduced me to different factories and would do research. And her and I would just hit the streets every day. And Do you I remember did- like how many factories you like? were introduced to before finding the one that you were going to work with? Oh, so many. I, <laughs> I have no idea, but yeah. it was a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. It was a lot. There, a lot of the different factories do different things. Like some people might just make a sole unit. Some folks might just knit an upper or even construct an upper. Like it's, when you get there, there's a lot of different specialties. It's true. Wow. There's a lot. 
Mm-hmm. And so, but you had, it, it, the great thing about it was you, you had this help to help you get through it. And I'm curious to know, like you said, you had a little bit of savings. How else were you going to kind of fund this initial collection? Well, I did have savings. I think I had five or $6,000 before I went to China. But the cool thing was that Guangzhou was still a city back then. Mm-hmm. But it's come, I mean, literally every year that I'd go after that, every time I landed, I it felt like a new city because they were growing so rapidly. But back then, I could literally live in China for under $5 a day. Wow. And wow. I was also staying with this family, and they had a chef and a nanny. And it wasn't, it's not like how help is here, how we view help here yeah mm-hmm. as in, in a lot of countries it was totally normal that's just what you had the help is you know you don't have to be well, rich or well off to have a chef mm. and so I was lucky enough where I was eating at their home and I didn't have a lot of expenses so they really helped in that way where I was able to use all the money to develop my first collection and come back with that that's incredible. When you think about this collection, when you think back to it and what you wanted to to bring to the world, when you looked out, what did you feel like was missing in in footwear? Well, I I worked on women's heels. I didn't do any sneakers or anything like that. And mm-hmm. I thought that the number one thing that was missing was just comfort and mm-hmm. a, a different perspective. I just felt like we could get so much more creative with heels. Mm-hmm. And I had seen some brands get creative with it, but it was always the one runway shoe that they wouldn't actually manufacture for right. consumption. It was just a show piece. And mm-hmm. so I kind of wanted to hit both of those marks where I was able to make something more comfortable, mm-hmm. but also something a little bit more different. So the first collection everything, all the heels were super ornate. Mm. I had convinced them to figure out how to put jewels into the heels. And I had one shoe where the entire upper was made of chain, like a oh, wow, a big Cuban link chain. That's amazing. Yeah. So it was really fun. And they were, you know, looking back, a lot of it didn't actually work. You know, the stones would fall out. Mm. That with the Cuban link chain, it was a very unstable shoe. <laughs> but, a little tough to wear. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was the beginning, so it was yeah. cool. How long between finding the factory and uh, getting finished products to sell? How long was that period? It was about four months. Okay, so uh, a good bit of time just working back and forth and figuring those things out. Yes. And and when you were ready to sell, how were you how were you gonna bring these to to market? Right, so it's two thousand seven. Were you thinking you would come back to LA and open up a storefront, or would you wholesale? What were you thinking? Yeah, I was thinking a lot of different things. I was looking into trade shows. There was specific shoe trade shows, and I think mm-hmm. I did two of them. And. It was good. I was able to get rid of inventory. But when I initially got back, I I really needed to recoup my investment right away just Mm -hmm. because I didn't have any other kind of income. And so I would post them. I would do photo shoots with my friends. 
I would have them come over. We would go driving around, and I would shoot them in the shoes, and then I would put the pictures up on MySpace. Yeah, MySpace so, days. <laughs> yeah. So that's how I started out was just posting things on MySpace, and then girls would message me, and then they'd come over to my apartment, and I would sell them the shoes, and oftentimes they'd want me to do some kind of photo shoot for them, so I'd mm-hmm. photograph them in the shoes. <laughs> So you're like, you're a creative agency at this point, right? Like yeah. you got, you come multi-purpose space, right? Come to my house, that's Funny. where the shoes are. I'll, yep. you know, I'll do the marketing, I'll do the photography, <laughs> <laughs> just pull up. <laughs> that was true. Yeah. So, so for a while, this is kind of how you were, you were operating. Um, and how was it going? Like how were, how were sales? It was cool. I I was really working at the time. I didn't have any type of strategy or plan. Mm -hmm. And so I just knew if I sold this amount of shoes a month or a week that I would be able to pay all my bills and get Mm. through it. And that was kind of where I was at with it. When we come back in just a moment, we learn how moving to China for nine months led Melody to work with some of music's most innovative figures and open a new path that she hadn't even imagined. Hey everyone, the Claim of Stories podcast is supported by Converse. If you're a fan of Chuck 70s like we are, be sure to visit Converse.com and pick up a new pair. Before we jump back into the episode, here's an original piece titled Claim Your Narrative by our friend Amiri Rose. Language gives power to narratives. Narratives we claim can determine and or define our career paths, our partners, cities we live in, who we vote for, what we eat, what we create, what and who matters, what gets dismissed, what kind of day we're going to have, what and who we believe in, and what we're doing in this very moment. This country was built on narratives. Narratives that shape how we navigate, finesse, and code our every day. Narratives that have been covertly, overtly, and institutionally crowned in our minds by a multitude of external voices that we oftentimes think is our own. So what's your narrative? Does the narrative you've internalized match your truth? How are you going to change it if necessary? How do you reclaim your language and purposefully claim your narrative? Hey, it's Pima. Welcome back to Claim of Stories. So Melody has just finished designing her first collection and selling it to customers straight from her home. While deciding if she would go back to China, she finds a new creative outlet. Um, that, so that I that was my initial goal. Mm-hmm. But the shoemaking process was very long. As I said, it took me four months to get the shoes, and that was pretty quick. That doesn't incorporate the four months that I was in China doing all the work. So it was quite wow. a long process. Mm-hmm. And I was already thinking about the next collection. I didn't know. I was like, do I have to go back to China to do this? Am I going to be able (laughs) to do it over email? And it was really difficult to do it over email. So it meant that I'd have to go back every Mm -hmm. single time. So in the meantime, I started making jewelry. Mm. What, What type of jewelry? Well, I started off with, my goal was to make a three-finger ring out of uh, acrylic, out of plexiglass. So I started making these three-finger rings, and then they kind of caught on. And then 
Um, I was taking bamboo earrings and I was um, covering them in Swarovski crystals <laughs> and making custom bamboo earrings with plexiglass, which nobody had ever done that kind of stuff before. Mm-hmm. So I, I was sort of making all these things and then people like Erica Badu were getting wind of it or Alicia Keys. Yeah. So I would make custom things for them and then everybody would want the custom things that I was making for them. So I started including those pieces into things that I would sell to people. Mm-hmm. And I think because jewelry is photographed like it's on your face, mm-hmm. it became a lot easier to sell than the footwear because oftentimes people don't photograph your shoes or, you, you right. know, they're not as easily displayed mm-hmm. in or photos. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so you start going down the jewelry route, and but it sounds like you're doing, are you doing customs as well as multiple pieces that are identical? Yes. I was doing both. I was just kind of piecing it all together. I was I was at the beginning I was just making everything that I wanted mm-hmm. that didn't exist in the market. And I was sort of just piecing them together as these are the things that are available. And initially I was doing custom items only for people that I knew or people that had connected to me. And then I figured out how to do them for just anybody who wanted to place an order. So people were emailing me and placing orders, and I would make them custom rings wow. or necklaces or whatever it was. How did um, – so you had mentioned that Erica Baidu and Alicia Keys, and I remember seeing the, the rings on, on this Erica Baidu cover. How, so how does, you know, Erica Baidu reach out? Is it, is it easier because – you know, not easier, but – are you more likely to run into folks because you're in LA? Like, what 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 happens? No, well, I don't know. It was kind of crazy when it all started happening. I was confused about it too. Like, how are <laughs> these people finding me? Mm-hmm. But with with Badu in particular, I was good friends with Saul Williams, still one of my dearest friends, and he's good friends with Badu. So I had made him a set of rings and I had worked on his album cover. He was the first person actually who ever asked me to work on a project for him. Mm. And he's an incredible poet and writer and he was doing his first ever music album. And Mm -hmm. he had been working on it with Trent Reznor. It was a really big deal. And he had created this character called Niggy Tardust, which was Mm. sort of a spoof on, um, what's his name? David Bowie's character, Ziggy Stardust. (laughs) And so it was really interesting because we would hang out at Swingers a lot, which was this diner in LA. We'd go out and then afterwards everybody would go to Swingers. And I had had this dream about Saul And in the dream, he was performing, and he had this whole character that he had put together. His face was painted. He had (laughs) uh, his hair, and I saw things so clearly. And the next night, we were at Swingers, and I was like, yo, Saul. I was like, I had the craziest dream about you. And I explained the dream to him, and he was just looking at me, and he was like, you literally just described the character that I've been working on for months. And I was like, Oh, this is wild. It was really cool. So he tells me about Niggy Tardust, and then he was like, I want you to do everything. He's like, I want you to make the clothes. I want you to do this. I want you to work on blah, blah, blah. 
And at that point, I had never worked on anything for anyone before. So I was mm. half terrified because <laughs> yeah, I'm course. like, are, are you sure you want to interest me? I, who, I'm nobody. I don't know how to mm. do this really. Um, but it really fast tracked me into the process of learning how to put everything together. And it was the push that I needed. So he was the first one. I made these three fingers, three finger rings for that said Tardust. And then I, mm. I ended up photographing him in the rings because it's mm-hmm. what I did. Yeah, why? Yeah, why would? Yeah, you? and so he ended up using the photographs as his album artwork and his cover. And um, we worked with this other uh, fine artist named Anjobert Metwire, who is an incredible mm. artist. And and it was the first time where I was with artists, working with artists, and I mm-hmm. was like, wow. I'm I'm an artist too. I'm an actual artist. Yeah, you're getting you're getting compensated to create yes. art, and you're partnering with other artists. This has got to be such a warped experience. It was such a warped experience, especially since I held them in such high regard, and mm. the way that they viewed me was one of them. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Wow, I I am one of you." And but I had never received that kind of mirroring before, been around mm-hmm. that kind of. So anyway, um, Saul was wearing these three finger rings everywhere. And I guess Badu <laughs> had seen him wear them and was like, what is that? I need that. So she called me and she told me that she was working on this new album called New America and that mm. she wanted me to make pieces for her. And I was like, what? Wait, what else can you tell me? <laughs> yeah, what, what's the, what's the yeah, rest of the brief? <laughs> right. So she just said New America and told me how she spelled it. And I was like, okay. So mm-hmm. I made her the pieces and then I called her or texted her. And I was like, hey, the pieces are ready. And I'm leaving to New York tomorrow. I was leaving to New York to see some friends. Mm-hmm. And I was like, is there any way that I can get them to you before I leave? And she was like, hey, I'm actually in New York. She was like, tell me when you land. And I was like, okay. So I I packed all the pieces and I showed up in New York and she told me to come meet her at this random studio. And I showed up at the studio and she was shooting the cover of her album, um, at the studio and she was doing a bunch of other magazine covers at the same time and Q-Tip was there and I was just like I was like wow and I showed her the pieces and she freaked out everybody in the room freaked (laughs) out and um, the photographer freaked out and so she put the rings on which said New America and she the whole thing she's like you know all the photos she was showing her rings as the the highlight and so when the album came out she had used that image of the rings and then mm-hmm. what was even cooler was that I had designed the font and she had used that typeface for the entire album and it sort of became the the logo and and creative direction for that album which this was is really unreal. really cool yeah it this was is unreal talk about and it's what I love about the story is how organic it is like this wasn't something that you had put together every single piece of, it's kind of just like right place, right time, and connected energy and synergy all manifest into this amazing moment for all of you, actually, like everyone involved. (laughs) Yeah. No, it felt really, really cool 
um, because it was also extra special because I was at the beginning. So like I said, I, I didn't have anybody in my life that was mirroring me. You know, I mm-hmm. had dropped out of law school. All my friends thought I was nuts. They were like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? They didn't get it. They had created yeah. distance from me. My mm-hmm. mom didn't understand what I was doing. She was really concerned about me. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really have any kind of support or mirroring at that time of like who I am and this part of me that I was trying to bring forward and unfold. And it was just, to me, it was the most divine gift that I had somebody I admired like Erica Badu telling me who I was and what I was and confirming me in that and I think that there was a part of her that saw that so that entire New York trip she took me everywhere with her you know she would go DJ at a club or she would go do this and she would hit me up and tell me to come and it was surreal it was something that I had never imagined and it really gave me the initial confidence that I needed of mm-hmm. of like what I am and what mm-hmm. I bring and what my skills are and, and what I have to offer. Yeah. It's like that initial, it's that big validation point after you've taken this leap of faith and yes. you're pursuing your authentic journey to have someone of that stature to come in and say, hey, no, you're actually doing the right thing and I'm going to introduce you to a whole nother world that'll help you continue to to do great in, in these things that you're doing. And after that moment, you were already starting to see a trajectory, but you you then took it to another level in your career and you you've done projects with Reebok. Your your footwear and some of your collaborations have also appeared and your jewelry have appeared on runways for, you know, designers like Jeremy Scott. Um, and then in 2013, you make this decision to open up your store on Fairfax. Uh, what what was it about Fairfax? Why why that location? Um, I was really I knew that the location. If I were to open any store, I knew that the location would be the most important thing for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was really you know I would go to different locations and I'd be like ah I don't know I don't know if I want to be committed to this place or I I would want to be here every day because it was (laughs) going to be where I was going to spend every day for God knows how long until the store got um you know took off or whatever and a friend of mine took me to the Odd Future store Mm. one day it had just opened on Fairfax and I just loved those guys so much. And it was the first time in a long time where I had felt real energy that was connected to L.A. Hmm. Whereas what in do you New mean York, by that? Like, you well, mean... there was, you know, there there is like the Tinseltown sort of <laughs> side of L.A. Right. And then there is the real LA and it's really difficult to navigate. Like as somebody that was born here, I know the difference between people that are from here mm-hmm. that are born and raised because those people aren't what the stereotype of what people think of as people from LA, right? Mm-hmm. It's a, a lot of people that come to LA and think that it's this thing and mm-hmm. become that and then present it as LA. And it it's not, LA is not a superficial Hollywood kind of place it's it's a lot of people that come here that make it that because Mm. they're interested in breaking into the industry or whatever Mm -hmm. and so it 
in and so on Fairfax, it was to me it felt like true LA. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't a facade of LA. You know, if you and there are other places like that, like Melrose for a period of time was that. I don't mm-hmm. know how it's not anymore. Unfortunately, it went through mm-hmm. a, a number of changes, but it was also the factor of how expensive it was in a lot of those other retail areas. And Fairfax was still predominantly an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood with a, a few random skate shops. Mm-hmm. And so the rents were were still pretty low. And it was something that I could afford combined with the fact that a lot of my friends were there, a lot of my friends owned shops on the block. And yeah, yeah it, it just had a vibe to it that I, I really, really liked. Yeah. And one thing, though, when I, when I think about Fairfax, it's a lot of um, men's specific driven retail. Was there any other either non-binary or women-owned shops on that block when you were opening? No. Mm. no. Did you, and what did you think about that? Did you, did you have any hesitation about being maybe the first? I did. I, not that I had hesitation, but I wondered if we would be welcomed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like, I don't want to kind of disrupt what's going on here. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that I did it as a move, like <laughs> I'm going to be the first. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't like, sometimes I don't like being the first. Mm. I have yeah, to, I mean, there's I have a to, lot that comes with being first. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so it was already hard enough for me to build up everything that I had built up to open a retail store. You know, it's right. kind of scary. And so on top of that, I, I didn't necessarily want to take on any other challenges. But it was kind of remarkable. I mean, I met the Supreme guys first mm-hmm. when I moved in outside of the Odd Future guys. And they were so happy they were like finally some girls on the block yeah (laughs) they don't want to be hanging out with dudes all day long so it was really really nice it was everybody was super welcoming and it felt nice to be there as a girl because we I felt like we brought an energy that Mm -hmm. wasn't there and so a lot of the girls that came to the block with their boyfriends now had somewhere to hang out and Mm -hmm. You know, for holidays, we would get everybody cupcakes and take them around and give them to the stores and the guys in the stores would, it was just so you could tell. It's that different energy. <laughs> it's different energy. And I sort of became like the resident therapist on the block where <laughs> all the guys from, you know, the different stores would like come through the back door and come hang out in the office and talk to me about what was going on. And, and I could tell that it was because they didn't have anybody else to talk to mm-hmm. there. So it was really, really sweet. It became such a sweet thing to bring that feminine energy and to have it be welcomed in that way. That's amazing. Like you became kind of like the community hub, if you will, on that block. Um, I want to go back just a little bit before you open. Uh, I know you had self-funded the footwear. When you were going to be opening this space, were you also going to self-fund the opening of your your store as well? Yes. Yeah, I had been. I've been completely self-funded the entire way. Mm. And with the store, because I had done the collaboration with Reebok, mm-hmm. it was the first time that I had gotten a chunk of money from the uh. sales from the sneakers. So it just kind of worked out at the perfect time where I had this initial money mm-hmm. in, a, in one chunk where I could afford to do something with it. 
Yeah. And so you'd kind of gotten to this habit of taking your earnings from from your business and just reinvesting it in the business, right? Yes. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's definitely, um, it, it, right now, we're, I feel like we're in that era where it's so popularized to only think about taking money from other people. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's just like, um, it's e- maybe easier to, to self-fund as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So you would have a couple of different people that would come by the shop that, that would work on Fairfax. And, you know, you felt like kind of that therapist. But what I thought was interesting was how you would parlay some of that kind of thinking and some of that kind of activity into hosting social um, events and, and conversations at the shop, particularly around social issues. What was the what was the motivation or inspiration for that at your space? Well, I've always wanted the the store to be more like a community center as opposed to just a place of commerce. And Mm -hmm. I think that the way that I've always run my brand hasn't really been about establishing the new look or being super forward in terms of design, but more so from the perspective of a new voice in the industry or a different kind of voice. Mm -hmm. And so I was always trying to educate my consumer and provide sort of a background for where that voice was coming from. Right. And I think it's really important to try to figure out how to make important things cool. (laughs) And that's something that I've noticed ever since I was young is that a lot of really important messages are never captured in a cool way. And so even, you know, with health foods is a perfect example. Like I remember buying almond butter And it was the most incredible almond butter, but they would put it in the most ridiculous packaging where it was like some picture of like this hippie girl with the worst font. And I'm always like, why do they have to do it this way? And so I've always tried to figure out how to take something that's really powerful and just present it in a way that would capture the attention of people like me that were, you know, that held good design and high regard. And so with the speaker series, it was always about paying it forward or sharing some of the information that I was coming across. Um, So I would bring bring people like Dr. Joy DeGruy to talk about her theory Mm -hmm. of axiology because I thought it was really important to talk about racism Mm -hmm. because it is something that's swept under the rug in America Mm -hmm. and I really feel like in her words, the pathology of America towards that issue has always been denial. Mm-hmm. Like, I wasn't alive when it happened. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I didn't, it did, you know, or just not even admitting to it, which is kind of crazy. Or I see all color. <laughs> and it's like, what? Yeah. So, um, you know, like I, I made a T-shirt around that time, which was sort of a spin on the Across Colors t-shirt that I grew up with that says, Love Sees All Color. Mm-hmm. And, or, or sorry, Love Sees No Color was mm. the Across Colors shirt. And then I remade it and said, Love Sees All Color because we need color to be acknowledged. Like, right, right. I, you know, you can't just pretend like somebody's not black or somebody, you know, right. you want to look at their blackness and appreciate it and love it and acknowledge it. And also be aware of all the things that come with that in society and whatnot. Not to just say, oh, I don't care if you're brown, yellow, green. Well, there are no green people. So let's Mm -hmm. talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So I'd bring in people like her or uh, Jenea Khan, who's an incredible activist, and and we would talk about stuff. And or you know, we brought in Serena Williams, and we would talk about her story and how she got mm-hmm. to where she is, and very similar to what you're doing because. I think for me, the most important thing growing up was seeing other people doing it and being like, wow, if they did it, if somebody like that, that looks like me, that has these things in common with me, did it, then I can do it too. Right. So I really wanted to empower anybody that came into the store because so much of the messaging out there is disempowering mm. and really make you feel like you're not. You know, everything, it's like our society really draws on all the things that we're not. Mm -hmm. And what would happen if we only focused on the things that we are? You know, my best friend, Julie Burns Walker, she says that there's, um, what is her quote? She said that there are a million things in the universe that you don't know, but the one thing that you do know is what will change the world. And I love (laughs) that. Wow. Because we're not meant to know everything. We're just meant to know what we know at the time that we know it. And it's about the the things that you do know, using those things to focus on and to change the narrative around whatever it is. And so this is just the thing that I knew. I, I happen to know these people that I admire and that I gain all this knowledge and information and inspiration from. And I felt how great would it be if I could introduce these people and give these people a platform to have these greater conversations so that Mm -hmm. there could be more of a a critical mass around some of these thoughts. Totally. And I think it goes back to kind of your perception of putting, putting a cooler spin on it. Like you, you touched on so many phenomenal, phenomenal things in your response. And you're right. Like when, even when we think about something that is so critical to our our livelihood for a lot of us is like how do you how do you earn a living and so many times that's not shaped in a attractive way at a young age at all right and and you know a lot of times you don't really think about it and then when you think about your platform and what you've been able to do you're essentially also saying I'm I'm opening up my platform for other thought leaders to come in to help this community it's not all about you know what I sell and and what I do it's about what other people do and what other people can possibly do with themselves um, to make our community better. Uh, because if we're not talking about it, we definitely don't really have an opportunity to make things better. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Um, so as we think, you know, w- we've all been impacted by by COVID nineteen. Um, a lot of our businesses and, and our retail businesses and restaurants too. Um, how has COVID changed your day to day operation? Oh, it's changed it significantly in the sense that we've really had to learn how to work remotely, (laughs) which is difficult when it comes to creativity and design because we're used to all being in a room together and, Mm -hmm. you know, pulling references and getting inspired and having these conversations and being on a Zoom chat is a lot more exhausting. You know, you're not getting that same kind of energy from people that you're yeah. used to getting. But in a lot of ways, it's also cool because I think that it's made us realize that we have a lot of freedom in terms of how we can work and that even if we're far apart, we don't have to stop. We can still 
keep going in one way or another. But the hardest part has really been manufacturing because mm. so many of our factories have shut down or oh, gone wow. in stages because, you know, they're not able to work in close quarters. Mm -hmm. So we've been, there's so many designs that we had that were supposed to come out that weren't able to come out that we've just had to repurpose or or scratch all together. So it's a lot of time and energy spent on things that we were really passionate about that unfortunately we didn't get to see come to life. But I really felt like this last year was the year of the pivot. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's like every day something would happen and it would be like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to pivot this way. We're going to have <laughs> to pivot that way. And as hard as it's been, there's something about it that's rewarding, which has made me realize that regardless of what's happening, I'm thankful to have the tools to know that I can always go deeper in myself to figure out another way. And mm -hmm. there's always something there if you go deeper. And it's really challenging having to go deeper than you've already been, especially when you feel like you've done all you can do. But there's always uh, something really gratifying about knowing that you can, you know. Yeah. No, and just knowing, right? Because you have to believe in yourself during tough times. You have to believe that you'll be able to pivot. There are opportunities that will exist in order to move forward. And, you know, you've been you've been doing uh, such a, a great job of that. And, you know, over the last two years, you've you've had a massive collaboration with Jordan Brand. Uh, you have done this amazing capsule that you just did with Foot Locker. As, you know, we navigate this road ahead, what are you, what are you most, mostly looking forward to? Hmm. I think that I'm looking forward to doing more things like this. I feel like I really love I've missed the the speaker series that we did was such a big part of the why for me. Mm -hmm. And so I really miss that, you know, community is the yeah. thing that I miss the most. So my focus has really been how can I create more communities where mm -hmm. what opportunities do I have to bring more people together in more unique ways to do something. I, I feel like that's really part of my curation or my design work is how mm -hmm. I can bring people together in different ways. So that's something that I'm really looking forward to. And of course, with product, it's never going to end. I'm always trying to figure out how I can deposit things into products that can, you know, inspire more conscious thought or conversation or awareness about whatever it is that I'm picking up on in terms of a trend, whether it be a thought trend or a fashion trend. or, And so I, I just am really interested in, in bringing up conscious thought more so for people. Yeah. As you think about where this amazing journey you've been on, right? Like when you think about overcoming the career path that was sort of presented to you as far as maybe you need to be a lawyer or a doctor. You made this pivot, you go into design, and you are where you are today. When you think about some of these young creatives that have entre entrepreneurial ideas, what's some advice you would offer to them? Hmm. God, there's so much advice <laughs> I would give them. I think when I was first starting out, 
the important things to me was the people around me. You know, the people around you, the company you keep is so incredibly important because they are the ones that are gonna, whether verbally or not, let you know what you're capable of, what, what they're cool with, and um, how they see you can have a huge impact on you. And that's something that never really ends, but at the beginning, it's like you're a baby. You know, it's like you're this precious little baby who's really sensitive. And so I really feel like it's important to protect your ideas and to protect who you share things with, especially if they're things that you've never done before, because it takes so much startup energy to be able to put something out. And we're all battling different histories and definitions of ourselves and projections. There's so many false projections on each of us from the world around us, from people around us, a lot of people who really love us that want to see us do certain things. But I think having some kind of practice where you can go in and weigh everything against your true self to ask yourself, like, is this for me? Is this who I am? Is this what I am? Is this why I feel like I'm here? and not allow false projections to dictate anything about you, I think is really, really important. I think it's the best piece of advice I could give, not just for the beginning, but forever. You know, it, because it's so easy. You know, we're, we're all like, for me, for example, I'm really um, vulnerable to sacrifice. Mm. And it's just been something where I think that I didn't really learn the true definition of sacrifice until later. Mm -hmm. And so anytime in the past where somebody's asked me to do something, mm -hmm. if I think that I can do it, sometimes I'll say yes, but doing that thing take, actually takes me out of my purpose. Whereas true sacrifice should be within your purpose. It should be something that you're happy to do, that you're willing to do, that serves you in some way at the end of the day. Not that takes away from you or it takes you away from doing the thing that is, you know, that, that is more authentic to you. That was Melody Asani, a multi-hyphenate streetwear designer that is dedicated to finding a place for not only women in the game, but also a place for peace and understanding. Thanks so much for listening to the show this week. Find out more about Melody and get access to all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe and please leave us a review. If you'd like to connect with us, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Claim of Stories. Our show this week is produced by BJ Fregoso, original music, production, and scoring by Adrian Anaya, with vocals provided by Rosella. And special thanks also to VDOT, Professor H, Jordan Dinwiddie, and Lily Lynn. I'm Bima, and you've been listening to Claim of Stories.